This is Work of the Beat. It is Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. I'm Kevin Cooney. Thanks for joining us. A little bit of a different show tonight. Mr. Kern is in New Orleans as he freeloads off of Bernard Fernandez, as we have found out. Uh, Our prayers to the Fernandez family um, for having Mike down there for a week. So joining us as our co-host... Uh, the man who is coming out with a book. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've talked about this on this show. Coming out with a book uh, next January, uh, The Rise, uh, about Kobe Bryant and his formative years from the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's Mike Silski. Michael, how are you? Thanks for having me, Kev. Uh, Mike Kern has um, very big yet small shoes to fill, um, so I hope I'm up to the task. They're about a size seven and a half, and I got them free at a golf outing. Anyway, uh, and <laughs> and joining us uh, formally from ninety seven five, the fanatic, uh, currently um, currently on her way to a so, uh, another uh, position that she will reveal. I'm sure at a later date, if she wants to reveal it now, she can reveal it now. Uh, but all time Philadelphia, one of the pioneers, really in Philadelphia broadcasting for women, oh, and goodness. and. Uh, one of the all-time good people in the business, and Mike and one of Mike and I's favorites on Twitter. It's Natalie Ekinoff. <laughs> Natalie, how are you? Good. Thank you guys for having me. I um I love doing this stuff, so I was really flattered when uh, you asked me to come on, and this is fun because um normally you know yeah we all interact on Twitter, and you know Sealski and I kind of just like fight each other on Twitter. So now it's just good to like take take jobs like face to face, you know. Here's the thing, and here's the thing that the audience needs to know, though. So, Natalie, um, I feel like I kind of, I'm like tangentially connected to Natalie and Kevin in weird ways, right? So, I have family well, from Northeast Philly. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Natalie grew up and went to high school, went to Doherty with a couple of my cousins who were more like little sisters to me than they are cousins. Um, so I've known Natalie in that context for a long time. And of course, Kevin and I have been friends forever and right. I have ties to father judge and all that kind of yeah, stuff. And, so and, uh, and so there's went, a lot of Philly love, um, amongst the three of us, even though I now live way out in the burbs. And I so, went uh, and I, when I was at father judge, we lost the Catino Mobley and Cardinal Doherty in the Northern division championship game in basketball in 1992. And we got ripped off and we had a riot afterwards at the palestra. It was all fun. Natalie wasn't it, even born yet. I don't think it's <laughs> 92, I guess, I, I guess I was like three or four. Thanks. Probably, Thanks yeah. Natalie. Oh, it's God. been great. That's having the most thing that's going to be said. <laughs> on this Natalie, Natalie, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us now. Um, all right, let me ask. It's been a couple of weeks. Are you, were you surprised by the outpouring that came in? Because you didn't make a long announcement like a couple of days, three days, five days in advance that you were leaving. It just happened one day. So those four hours looked like they were a, a, a wreck for you in a, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, um, you know, I had kind of made the decision that I wanted to take, um, you know, a step for myself in a career into a more like autonomous, um, independently creative space. Um, I legally still can't say where I'm going yet, but um, don't worry, it's coming soon. Uh, and um, I, uh, you know, so I made the decision and then, yeah, like I, you know, when I told Mike and Tyrone, we kind of discussed the way that we were going to do a farewell. Um, and, you know, we, I thought we were going to do it Thursday. Mike said maybe Thursday, but then, you know, I, I didn't want it to overshadow the other shows just because I, I you know, I knew it was going to be news, but like, 
I didn't know that it was going to be like that. Like the final farewell show was beyond anything I would have ever expected in my entire life. And um, that's just a credit to Mike and Tyrone for really sending me off um, on the highest note possible, just because I never would have expected somebody called and sang me Frank Sinatra. Like that's all that I ever could have asked for in my life. Okay, Mike. So Natalie, one of the things um, that I admire about you is your versatility in what you're able to do, right? Like you, um, it's not just, you know, you're not just able to talk sports intelligently um, with an informed opinion. Um, You dabble, you've dabbled in TV, you've done a little bit of comedy, things of that nature. Um, Working for 97.5 as you did, did that help? And and I'm not, I'm going to ask you what you're doing next. And I don't expect you to tell me, obviously. Um, But did that help? narrow your focus at all or change your perspective on what you wanted the next stage of your career to be? Um, I think 97.5 definitely benefited me because it kind of, it helped like amplify um, my voice and kind of my skills as a, I guess, entertainer, if you will, because I, I'm, I'm in this space now where, you know, I started out in this career, always kind of wanted to do, um, one, I thought that I'd end up on a sideline somewhere. Um, but then just the way that the career trajectory went for me, um, I, you know, fell into that role on the Mike Missinelli show and I enjoyed, oh, I, oh, I'm sorry, what is this sound? Um, and I really enjoyed I'm not sure if that's the you or me, to be entertainment honest. aspect of it. Right. Um, and just being able to kind of be myself in a space um, where I can talk about issues, provide commentary, on you know important things but then also have just like a lot of fun and really at the end of the day entertain people so i think 97.5 kind of gave me that space where i i learned that that's what i'm most passionate about um in i guess like broadcasting and media and um just the entertainment industry because we all know that this is actually all just entertainment (laughs) uh let me play for you a clip and this is uh something we had a couple weeks ago on the show we had Rhea hughes on and we talked about the challenges that go on even to this day, and maybe more so because of social media that goes on with uh, for women in this in, in this industry. And let me let you you know, Ray. Obviously, you started over at the morning show with with Angelo. Here here is Ray's comments. You know, Natalie started with us, and I'm I'm incredibly proud of her. I really am. Right. Every day I see her, you know, doing her thing, and I I actually shot her a text message a couple months ago. You know, some guy went after her. Right. And I forget what her response was, but I was so proud of her. I sent her a text message. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Go, go ahead, go ahead. No, oh, I just said, I just sent her a text message and I said, I said, Natalie, I, I go, I could not have been as smart and funny and witty in my response because you guys know me. I would have brought the gloves out and started fighting. And she killed him with her response. And I thought it was brilliant. I was really proud of her. Please. And, and so I, I guess I this. Can I just say for the record, I regret saying that on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kidding, guess, kidding. I, I guess the the question is, I mean, you're dealing with a challenge that Rhea didn't have to deal with, obviously, when she was going through this. How difficult do you think it is for women in this industry on this with the social media end of it, giving a new dynamic to just some jackass who wants to talk and and pout spout off like they can be on on twitter um it's definitely something that i've grown a thicker skin with over the years and you know it 
people don't know like what's going on in your personal life or whatever you're dealing with. So there are days when, you know, you might just not be having a a good day and you've got like family stuff going on and, you know, you open your Twitter and, you know, you're trying to give commentary on whatever and you just have people being like assholes to you. Right. So it's just like, it's definitely different too, because there's always, and I've, I've said this and I'll say it again, the biggest battle that I've ever faced in my career was always perception, right? Because there's this inherent belief that just because I'm a woman that I don't know what I'm talking about or just because I don't deliver my opinion the way some of the other guys on the sports talk radio do means that it's incorrect or that it's um, not coming from a place of like my own actual observations. I'm Nobody ever questions um, people's opinions or like male opinions the same way that they question mine. And they also don't, um, I don't, I don't know if people get attacked for their looks as much when it comes to an opinion. Um, it never, the criticism, you know, when men spar about, um, opinions is never, they never just go for the jugular and say, Oh, well, like you, you know, your eyes are weird or, you know, you're, you have a space in your teeth, like very specific, very strange, um, like, uh, weird, just criticism, um, that I think women have to deal with a lot more than men. Um, and it's just because I think that men think women are easy targets when actually like anybody who's in this business and I don't think anybody's faking it. Right. Right. There's some people who kind of, want to be in it for the glitz and the glamour, but a lot of the women, especially a lot of the ones that I follow on Twitter who kind of have the same Twitter attitude that I do, we're there because we, we love it and we like to talk about sports and we just want to hang out and have a good time. Um, and I think that there's a lot of us who have like a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because it's, it's just something that I think women deal with a lot more than men. Did it get worse because of, I, I, and Mike, I'll let you get in, in a second. Did it get worse with the television end of it? Uh, when you guys ended up going on on, on NBC Philly um, and the show's on every day. And look, it's an opinionated show and it doesn't always stick to sports. Yeah. Did it get worse in that respect? Oh, yeah, it totally got worse. Um, after we went on TV, I but after I think some time and the more I was able to vocalize and the more I think people got to know me uh, in their homes, I feel like people started to understand me a little bit better and they didn't already have a preconceived notion or a perception of why I was there because there was, you know, a lot of what I said was people would just be like, Oh, well, she's just there just because she's a face. And it's like, no, I'm there because I, I want to be in this business. I want to entertain people. I want to talk about the teams that I grew up loving. Like there's a science to radio, you know, and I think people forget that um, it's actually an art form. It's theater of the mind. And you want to paint a picture for the audience in. So in their brain, they're enjoying and listening. The key is to listen. Right. And um, I, I think that people just don't, understand that you need to have talent to be there as well and need to have talent to kind of make a show work and I I, you know the work that me Mike and Tyrone did together whether we were talking about serious topics or talking about something silly or talking about you know the teams um we kind of just forged this bond over the years and I think once people got to know me the criticism wasn't as harsh um because they could tell that I was there you know to do my job um, but the, I feel like those judgments should never be there in the first place, right? When you're questioning the intent sure. of why somebody is doing what they're doing in their life. Okay, yeah, Mike, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, no, I'm just contemplating how, you know, after a half hour of talking to you two, I'm going to hang up on the Zoom call and my 
Philly accent's going to be even thicker than it already was <laughs> just by osmosis. Um, and that leads me to what I wanted to ask Natalie, yeah. which is, you know, your, your persona such as it is on social media um, is very, and this is, I know this because this is you in real life, is very Philly oriented, right? I saw yeah. your tweet earlier today about, you know, uh, the Sixers are playing tonight, hope they win, have a good Wednesday, you know, <laughs> spelling it in a way that it would be pronounced uh, in a Philadelphia accent. So my question is kind of two parts for you. Number one, um, how much of your branding, so to speak, um, is connected to the city? And then two, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you got to love sports as much as you did and knew that you wanted to make this your career? So I think um, when it comes to, I guess, say, like Philadelphia branding, it's really just because I was born and raised in the city of Philadelphia. I've never lived anywhere else, even for a second. I mean, I've lived within the city limits for 32 years. Um, and I guess just growing up here, it's it's such a part of my identity because my family, you know, I was actually recently just able to trace back my roots to 1742, you know, Northern Liberties. And I'm in Port Richmond now. So like my, whole, it's just a part of who I am. And you know, I I always felt that Philly got the short end of the stick, so I try and represent it in the best light possible and really embrace um, what people kind of knock on us for, whether it's the accent or, you know, the way that we are gritty, which I, like, can't stand that term anymore. Because I think that the city just has so much more to offer to people, and we just kind of get pigeonholed into this narrative that I don't even think exists anymore. Like the city is filled with art and music and culture and, and beautiful people who are just real. And that's why, you know, when I, it's not necessarily branding, like I just like to keep it real. Cause that's who I am. And I think that that's who the city is. Um, but I grew up just authentically loving the teams. My dad would take me to the games and we would listen to sports talk radio every Friday when he would pick me up and I just kind of fell in love with it. And I thought it was really cool and funny. And, you know, I always enjoyed the personalities on the air and back then it was just WIP. So I was listening to Angelo and Glenn and Anthony and, and, and a Howard Eskin. Like I remember listening and enjoying Howard Eskin back in the day. And, you know, I, Oh, you were the one. Yes, that was me. That was me. <laughs> just kidding. At just like kidding. 12. But um, I just really found it so entertaining. Um, and I just did. I, I love the teams. That was it's just that was my religion outside of Catholicism growing up. And that's kind of how I got into it. And it's it's unreal sometimes that I made it to where I did in Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio. But it's all just genuinely part of who I am and how I was raised. So when you work next to these people and you work next to Angelo for a long time, well, you know, you were working for Angelo, you know, when you got there um, and now you, you know, you were Anthony's update person for a couple hours every day. Then you work with Mike. I mean, is it weird a little bit? I mean, because these, again, these are people you grew up listening to and no, no, it's not weird. Um, and the, I always tell people this, as much as the public perception is of these men, um, you know, as having these erratic, zany personalities and, you know, not always being favorable toward uh, everybody, I uh, I have to say they all 
always treated me really well and um, with respect. I never felt disrespected or uncomfortable or in any situation where, um, you know, I kind of think, especially, you know, somebody like Anthony, he he's always kind of treated me like a little sister because I got into the business when I was 19 years old, right? I was a receptionist um, for CBS radio and WIP. And I, I, I think that they just saw me as just like a little, you know, their little sister. Um, and then as, you know, I kind of evolved over the years, they just, I, I got to say, they've all just been really, really good to me and nice to me and kind of just let me do my thing. And I think it, it's because I'm from here. Right. So they kind of knew that my heart was in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always just trying to climb to the next step, improve my performance and just be better. Like, and I think that they saw that by my work ethic. Let's get into the actual teams themselves. Sixers are scheduled. Well, Sixers are going to play game five tonight. Joel Embiid is doubtful in, according <laughs> to NBA terms. Uh, although there was some, there were some questions about that terminology last night that he, that doesn't mean he's out of game five. But I guess I'll ask both of you. Um, if you're sitting in that front office, if you're Daryl Morey, if you're Doc Rivers, are you risking Joel Embiid tonight if he's not 100% ready to go? Go ahead, Matt. Um, well, it's funny. I was thinking about this this morning. I, I, I kind of wanted over it, so I would put him in. I, I want it over with. I want the series over with. Um, if he's feeling okay and he says that he's feeling okay, I, I think I'm I'm going to put him in. I, I don't know if I'm going to give him 30 minutes, but I think it's obvious how his presence is so necessary um, in in these games. And I I think that if I were Doc, I'd, I'd, I'd play him. Mike? <laughs> I would probably play him too, but I see yeah. the logic behind not playing him, right? Like yeah. if you can if you can – get out of here tonight with a win. Um, and let's be honest here, guys, like with Embiid in there, this series has been like, um, it's been, it's know, been over a, since a cat batting a two. mouse around, right? right? Yeah. I mean, the Wizards don't have a chance if Embiid plays. So you can do that. You can play him tonight and you can run the risk that he gets through it. Okay. And of course that depends on things. The three of us don't know how, how injured is he really would a night off help him, you know, considerably down the road. Um, but it, I could see the logic behind if there's a way for them, if it would really benefit them and him for him to sit tonight, go ahead and play without him. You should be able to beat the Wizards at home without Joel Embiid this one time and then get him healthy, you know, to play presumably the Hawks. Um, because he's, as Nat said, he's just that important, right? Yeah. And and the circumstances are different, right? This isn't, I think the, the one thing, right up until the moment that Joel hit the deck, the one thing that everybody acknowledged about this team and this series was this is a different Sixers team from the one that kind of sort of struggled to beat the heat back in 27, what was it? 2018. And yeah. yeah, And that, you know, lost game one to the nets before the nets had their big three back in 2019, this was a different team. They were going to wipe the wizards out. So, you know, they should be able to win tonight, and then you get Joel back healthy, and then you go from there. Plus, if you look at it, I mean, you know, Embiid doesn't play the final three quarters. Harris was not good in game four. You know, Embiid, or, uh, Simmons obviously has the foul shooting issues uh, as well, and that's still a tie game with three minutes to go. I think that yeah. kind of outlines that, you know, 
you don't need to rush this. And especially because if you win the night, you're not going to play probably till Sunday going forward. And, you know, assuming maybe the Knicks win the night, you know, and get their one game at home uh, to send it back to Atlanta. Um, If you don't win the night, then you're looking at a tight turnaround no matter what, because even you're going to play Friday, even if you haven't be back, then you're probably going to play on Sunday again. You you might as well just, you know, let them rest and and get the extra time anyway, because if you, if you get forced to game six, you got bigger problems on your hands than just Joel Embiid. I think that's my opinion. So, uh, that, and that's why I want it over with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that I, is the con- that is the consummate Philadelphia way of looking at things. You know, there's no, no such thing as a bird in the hand, right? You know? No, no, it's it's more of just like a you know that instinctual anxiety just kicks up a notch, and I'm that's like, my point. No, that's exactly my point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like you kind of. Um, it's almost like, do you want to, do you want to potentially sacrifice them? Right. Just to get, just to close it out and get to the next round. Um, it's, it's tough because the, as much as I know that, you know, somebody like Tobias Harris, I don't expect him to get out there tonight and play like he did on Monday night. Uh, you know, I, I had a feeling they were going to lose. I just didn't think that they were, I was hoping they would get the sweep, but I kind of felt like it was going to be a five, um, game series uh and you know somebody like him if he could step up and fill those gaps you know they could close it out but i I just i would prefer to have joel there it's a jail and rose cause a five game series a gentleman's sweep like basically you you acknowledge that okay the one team is going to get the one game at home and yeah and that's pretty much what i think is going to happen here uh the other story involving this game tonight it's going to be the first um event in philadelphia to be played in front of a full crowd, I want to say since Flyers-Bruins back in March last year. I know there was a sixer game after that, but I think people had kind of backed away anyway at that point. Um, how we, you know, we've all been to events since, you know, the pandemic started to ease up. How weird is it going to be having 20,000 shoulder to shoulder tonight, even with mask on? Uh, in a building you think let's start with that um so i was at the last i was at that last flyers game all three Um, of us were actually i think yeah Yeah. yeah, we we were weren't we um (laughs) where before the world shut down and um being back at i went to the game a couple weeks ago a sixers game and i've been to a phillies game so far and being there i think i just had such a greater appreciation you know for what we miss, right? Just have having the opportunity to go and sit in a stadium and watch the teams that you love and just take that all in. And I'm, I feel like it's going to be emotional for the fans, right? They're going to, it's the first time that they can all actually be together in a space. And it's a game five of round one of the playoffs where, you know, the series is on the line. And I, I mean, that, that in itself could potentially carry them if if Joel doesn't get in. Um, I'm just so happy for everybody who's going to be in that um, at the Wells Fargo center tonight, sitting there cheering them on. It's going to be really special. I think just because we're going to have a greater appreciation uh, for the smaller things that we may have used to take, you know, taken for granted back before the pandemic. I just hope everybody like acts right. Like no throwing stuff, no running onto the court. I know we've all been inside. I've been, I've been just pleading with people like, you know, just sit in your seat, 
follow the rules. You know, it's it's been a long year, but, you know, we're almost there and you don't want to ruin the experience for other people around you. That means you, Silski. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be there tonight. I'm on uh, NHL draft lottery. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> such such is the glamorous life of a sports writer. Um, yeah. <laughs> but to, and the Flyers uh, will pick ninth. Point, you know, I think it's. I think it's really important to have benchmarks like this. I've been writing this, you know, for the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I couldn't wait to get my second shot. Shout out to the uh, CVS on Ron Street in uh, in Northeast Philly. That was oh, where nice. I got it. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, so and, you come uh, to Philly for our shots? Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Well, it was back. It was back before everything had opened up. And I'm shots kidding. were I'm widely kidding. available. Uh, so I, I know how to game the system, and I knew exactly where to go. Um, but the point being, like, that's why we got the vaccine. That's why mm-hmm. it, it is to to move back into living life as we as close to as what we once knew. And I think personally, sports is a is a kind of a major part of that. It's part of what connects us. There isn't a whole lot anymore in our country, in our society that draws a lot of people together from a lot of different backgrounds, whether you're black, white, gay, straight, et cetera, et cetera. And in the Philadelphia region, sports is one of those things. It might be the thing. And so going there to be able to cheer if Ben Simmons throws down a dunk or to kind of boo him if he misses a free throw, like that's, that's good. That's getting life back to where closer to where it's supposed to be. And I think that's, I think that's right about the emotion of it. I think it would be different if it were game one of a game of a series against the Hawks or the Knicks. Yeah. And the fact that it's a closeout game, you know, will will make the atmosphere all the better. And uh, I think this is a great thing. And and I hope that we keep inching that way, whether it's more and more fans feeling comfortable about coming back, whether it's the teams feeling more comfortable about allowing their players and coaches and, and people to interact with the media, which, you know, I think is a big deal, honestly. Um, yeah. I think it's all good, and let's keep. And it's going to be tough. It's going to take time, but let's keep inching our way there. And, and I got to admit, um, I actually, you know, I, I as I mentioned, I, we were at the last. My stepson and I were at the last game against the Bruins, um, and we had seats and we got them and everything. So tonight, I, I'm actually going on the same tickets. I literally got the same section. Uh, oh, amazing! In, in the, good in, for in you. the revolutionary awesome. row upstairs. Jelly. What? I said I'm jelly. Yeah. <laughs> and I pretty much, you know, because I wanted to make it feel like it, it's getting back to normal. And he's vaccinated and I'm vaccinated. And it's one of those things I think Mike's right. I think, you know, we've all we've all lived through this. And we've all lived through something and we're never going to really be able to completely shake. But you also have to realize that, you know, in every major event, people did go on. And people did move forward. And this, I think, is a big step tonight for the city. I really do. And you're right. Game five, a closeout game. I'll actually, I can't believe I'm saying this. I actually give credit to the city for pushing it up a little bit as mm-hmm. opposed to holding back to their original date. It would have been easy to do that. But pushing it up in a sense of, of trying to signal that the city is getting back to normal, I think it was a pretty good idea. And I think it'll be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what the crowd's like down there tonight. Let me get... Uh, a couple quick hit topics here with Natalie before we let her go. Um, are the Phillies totally irrelevant in this city? Today, yes. Um, after the Sixers, no, because that'll be it until, you know, 
training camp and the Flyers, um, you know, pick things up again. Uh, but I don't think that they've been able to grasp the fan base uh, the way that they want to. I I mean, going to the games is always, you know, I would go watch the Phillies at the ballpark uh, any day of the week just because it's such a great experience and it's something to do. And Citizens Bank Park is like my favorite place in the world. But um, I, I don't know if the team has been able to just capture the fans' attention the way that they did. And, you know, my my basis of comparison uh, for the Phillies is always going back to you know, that 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, incredible stretch of baseball, the best baseball I ever watched in my life. I know everybody loves 93, but again, I was like four. Um, so I... Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're now rubbing it in. So, so you're like, okay, Nat, it's time to go. Um, so, <laughs> no, I... Um, you know, that's my baseline for what good Phillies baseball is. And they failed to even get remotely close to that over the last decade or so. I I was always optimistic. I think that they thought that, you know, Bryce Harper signing him would be something that was going to make the fans pay as much attention. But I just think that the mismanagement of their farm system, their lack of um, really evaluating pitching, it seems like the decision-making from the organization top down has led them to this place where I think that at certain times, and I think even, you know, a couple months ago, they're the fourth, they're the fourth team in the city. Yeah. You know, which is, which it talk about a fall from grace, right? They had, they had the fan base. Well, and, you, you, know, you, would, just, you would put them behind the flyers though, right now. Um, no, no but I think the flyers have, it, it seems like, there's more, I mean, despite the collapse, I have, you know, my own, own thoughts on that. I think COVID really did a number on them. Um, but I, I think that there's a little bit and well, and this is also my diehard flyer fandom probably coming out. Right. Yeah. There's a, I think Natalie's right in this sense, Kev. I think there is a core <laughs> group of flyers fans, however big you want to make it, that is more passionate about them than they yeah. are any other team. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Phillies don't have that. Now, the Phillies fan base yeah. is, is larger and more kind of disparate and spread out. Because it's but, baseball. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But the Flyers have, for lack of a better word, they have that cult. And and they're, they're never going to lose that no matter yeah. how irrelevant they are in the grand scheme. Yeah, but they've also, let's be honest, they've also alienated a large number, number of that cult with non, uh, non-on-ice stuff over recent years. Oh, yeah. yeah that's true. I, I think to Nat's point about um, the Phillies and being unable to kind of seize the moment. Remember too, back in that run that she talked about citizens bank park was still new, right? All of a sudden it, because it had a good team in this new ballpark, it became the thing to do on a summer night in the city. Mm -hmm. And you had the Sixers going through the post Iverson period when they were just good enough to make the playoffs and do nothing more. The flyers had a run or two there, but they weren't, they also, you know, they also had the year lockout. Right, they had the year lockout. And the Eagles were in kind of a stale period too, right? I mean, they had the NFC Championship run kind of out of nowhere in 08, but they had gotten into this rut of, mm-hmm. you know, they're probably going to be pretty good, but they're not going to make the Super Bowl. And did Donovan throw up in the, you know, in Jacksonville and all that kind of yes. stuff. I mean, the fact that the Phillies were that good at that time really contributed to them taking off the way that they did. And those circumstances don't exist now. And, yeah. and, and I think the main part is... They, you know, your roster's top. They've become the angels. 
They really have. I mean, you know, you have the you have the couple superstars that are there. You spend a lot of money. You're up against the luxury tax, but you're so shallow with your talent base. I mean, your your bench depth is awful. Your minor league system is producing nothing, and that's what I think. That's something I think people in this town are smart enough to understand that they're they're not they're not a contender to do anything because they don't really have enough to do anything. You know, they can. They can yeah, win and they, and they don't play and like it. a fun brand of baseball no, now. No. Part of that, yeah, and part of that is just baseball now. Like baseball is not as fun to watch. You know, let me stand on my you know old man you know rant lectern here, um, but it just isn't as fun to watch. And they are particularly unfun to watch. They can't catch the ball. Oh, the catching the they, ball they, is a big part. You know, yeah. they don't they don't hit very much. Last night, notwithstanding, um, they're just not an entertaining watch most nights. I think baseball's problem is a their failure to, um, you know, try and capitalize on the superstars that they do have, because I, you know, we have this conversation a lot. It's like, how many people, honestly, if you were at a supermarket, who, who are you going to know? Do you think that you're going to recognize Claude Giroux or are you going to recognize Reese Hoskins? You know what I mean? And it's, I think the way that the teams, you know, they, especially a couple of years ago, the Phillies really sold Hoskins and Kingery as the future of the team. So then when they fail to meet those expectations, the fan base is like, well, that's all that we had. And now they're not working out. Um, and I think baseball has that problem in general. And then I think with the Phillies in particular, that gap, right. Where like the analytics started to come in um, and the A's were really like the first organization to kind of like, I think start that trend baseball kind of, all glommed onto it. I think that failing to kind of incorporate the fan base into really understanding the science behind the analytics and why decisions are now being made off of computer models. I think that that's, there's that gap too, right? Because you have this generation of diehard baseball fans and then you have the new age baseball fans and it's like baseball failed to inform the fans on those changes, if that makes sense. No, they did. And and I think part of it too, though, is, when you have no action in the game, when you, when there's no, yeah. when it's walk, strikeout, or three or three run homer, it gets boring. And I love the sport. I do. I, I love yeah. it in its pure form. But it's tough. It's really tough to to donate four four hours of your night, even if it's background music in your home. It's tough to donate four hours of your night for a product that doesn't move. You know, it's it's like watching it, it, static. Yeah, not not to take the conversation in a completely different yeah. direction, but um, Jack McCaffrey from the Delco Times, our friend, wrote an interesting column the other day in which he pointed out that one of the biggest detriments to baseball in the last 35 years has been the disappearance of stadiums with artificial turf. And his argument was that stadiums that had artificial turf led the teams that played there in general to value t- players who put the ball in play yeah. because a ground ball had more, had a higher chance of getting through the infield. And so the Cardinals Bush stadium had turf all the time. Right. right. And you know, we can, we can rip veteran stadium, you know, all we wanted for the turf that killed careers, but you know, maybe there's something in a kind of a, a twisted kind of way to what Jack's saying. Well, and honestly, it also created more of an opportunity for the speed game, more stolen bases, right. more, more right. of an ability to, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, I love how like baseball, they're still trying to tweak it, right? You know, all the things that they did in the minors this year, extending, what, extending the bases one, one inch, moving, you know, the pitchers, um, 
rubber a little bit and uh, letting them extend their legs. Like I, it's just, I think they're still trying to figure out how to make the game more fun or better, but it's, it's, it's like, I, I think it's just their marketing first and foremost, and kind of just keeping people excited about it when there are changes being made. It just kind of flies under the radar unless you're super invested. All right. Final question, Nat. Okay. okay. You can, you can change one thing in Philadelphia sports. What is it? One thing in Philadelphia sports. Mm-hmm. Howie Roseman. <laughs> wow. Oh, hold on. I didn't hear that on birds outsiders when you were there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> We were a different kind of show. I um, understand. No, I <laughs> I have no qualms. And it was funny. The, my last day on the Mike Missinelli show, people were like, we're going to miss you, Nat. And then it was like, hashtag fire Howie Roseman. I'm, I'm glad that <laughs> that is the takeaway. <laughs> no, I mean, I just, you know, from what I know of what happened in that organization after that Super Bowl run, not good, not good, no, no. faith. No. no faith in this organization. No. We'll see. And I, uh, I I, don't trust that they are invested in Hertz at all. Well, they're I not. They're not. They're not. No. No. They're, no, they're not at all. And uh, I'm intrigued to see what they do over the next couple of weeks because I don't, I don't trust them for a second. And life as a Philadelphia sports fan is one just perpetual con- quarterback controversy, which I think is just a living hellscape. So... Nat, it's got to be hard walking around the streets of the city, constantly looking to the sky for the safe that's going to fall on your head. Isn't it tough? I know. I know. What are you going to do? I mean. What are you going to do? Can you imagine if Nick Foles had come back? Oh, if Nick had decided to come back. Like, the, 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 I guess the report was the report was yesterday that he had said he did not want to come back to Philadelphia. Uh, I, I I wouldn't be on this call right now if he'd come back. I would have been writing my 17th consecutive Nick Foles column. Yeah, I um, I think it's hilarious because um, I don't blame him for not wanting to come back. Um, and, and you know because he was a part of the organization too, right? So I think that he's acutely aware of what has gone on behind closed doors uh, within you know with the Eagles and the way that people were being treated there and the fact that everybody's jumping ship it's it's you know kind of speaks to the integrity of the organization right and um i don't blame them for not wanting to come back and also because they would have they the city would have called for him and he knows i think he knows he's not that caliber anymore must be nice to get paid that much and not be that caliber so uh, we're I, all trying to get there, Kev. We're in my, all next, trying to get in my there. next life, I said I just want to be a backup quarterback. <laughs> That's right. It Ugh. pays well. <laughs> Natalie Aganoff, formerly of 97.5 The Fanatic and formerly of NBC Sports Philadelphia, I guess I should point out. And hopefully soon to find out where she will be from, uh, except for yes. obviously. I'll still be local, so don't worry. Okay. I'll still uh, be here. Uh, can, can I? Can Couldn't I, imagine you anywhere else, kid. No. I, I mean, who else? Where Where else would I fit in? Yeah. Yeah, the accent probably doesn't play well in Topeka. You know, I'm just going to go. All right. So, Natalie, in all honesty. Yeah. In all honesty, because I watch it literally every other day. How many times do you go on YouTube and queue up the Saturday, Saturday Night Live Murder Dirter skit? And just watch it to laugh. I've watched it like a thousand times. And you know what's funny? I, I, at first when I watched it, I was like, I'm so offended. I can't handle it. And then I just, and then I laugh because it's like that chip on my shoulder. And like Kevin said, 
I mean, early, very early on in my career, I guess, when I was still very green at WIP, I think I was like 20 or 21, I um, sent my tapes out that I had. And ev- I mean, I, I've been denied by every agency, every news station I went to, and they were like, your accent is just horrible. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> I don't have one. You know, you I was know? just going like, to say I, that. You, you don't understand. I worked in New York for three and a half years. And yeah. every day I was there, I had somebody tell me, is everyone from Philadelphia, is their accent as strong as yours? Like, what's going on? Like, dude, you're from Brooklyn. You're from the Bronx. You're telling yeah. me I have an accent. You all can't. None of you can talk. I, I, no. I, I love, I love, I was in Boston two weeks ago and people are like, what's with your accent? I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> you guys? Of all people? They're yeah. just jealous. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Natalie. Yeah, I, Stutter. Yeah, yeah. Murder, Durder. Murder your Durder. Your daughter. Natalie, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully, Thank you guys hopefully so we'll much. have this you on so again soon. I appreciate Good it. To see you, Natalie. Natalie yeah, I'll, off. I'll see you guys. And we'll be back on Working to Beat right after these messages. Our thanks to Natalie Eganoff of ninety-seven-five The Fanatic for joining us. Uh, one of one of our favorites, Mike. I think that's fair to say, correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. Like I said, Natalie and I have that kind of family connection where she went to she went to Doherty with two of my cousins, um, one of whom is my goddaughter. Um, so I've known her a long time, and uh, just a, I mean, she's she's so smart, she's so funny, um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really eager to see what she's got. I don't agree with her on everything, but I'm eager to see what she's got coming down the pike because um, we need people and faces like hers in the market. Um, we do. We need smart, funny, sharp people um, talking about and producing content related to Philadelphia sports. Um, you know, we just need them. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, I think that's one thing we, we've we've talked about this off the air, and Mike and I have talked about it on here. Um, you know, I think that this market still feels like you know there's a deeper there's a deeper soul for this market than people think, and, and what I mean by that is it's not all hot takes, it's not all um, it, there there is nuance and. I don't think that we tap into it enough. And I, and I think Natalie brought that, you know, it was, she, you know, she did bring the voice of the fan, but she also wasn't like just absolutely everything's 100%, you know, hunky dory, you know, you know, it's funny, Kev. I, I look at, and this might sound a little weird. Um, and we're dealing totally in the realm for the moment with talk radio, but I look at what Natalie brought to, um, 97, five, mm-hmm. In the same way that I look at what Glenn Macnow and Ray Dittinger yeah. bring to WIP, like that might sound um, strange at first, but I see them on the same continuum, right? Like they can both, they both of those shows and those three people tap into something about Philadelphia sports and its appreciation for the history of sports in this town, the appreciation that if you think you're seeing something new and something you haven't actually seen before, hold on a minute because that thing happened in 1961 or 1976 and Natalie can talk about it and knows the history and Glenn and Ray certainly know the history and not everything has to be hair on fire. Right. Um, Screaming. Yeah. Sucks. Right. This guy's awesome until he sucks. 
um, there is a nuance there and there's an appreciation for the history and traditions and kind of um, intrinsic, intrinsic Philadelphia-ness of our sports teams. And I think that, you know, any sports media outlet in the city kind of has to be mindful of that if they want to be successful. And I'll also say this. I, I You mentioned those two. Uh, you mentioned Glenn and Ray and you mentioned Natalie. They also have the ability that if it's a slow news day, we can talk about something else. And it sounds perfectly normal and perfectly fine. It doesn't feel forced. You know, what we talked yeah. about with Mayor of Easttown, that type of stuff. You know, it, it sounds, you know, if it's movies, if it's music, if it's, uh, you know, just going to great restaurants and, and, and all of that. It's, you know, I think sometimes that that's just as important. Not everything should be processed about sports. And no, and, and not everything should be processed through. This is going to this might sound terrible, but like callers who want to talk about sports. Yeah. One, one of the reasons that Angelo Catali has succeeded in this city as long as he has is that Angelo is a compelling listen. Yeah. You know, when you when you think about talk radio success stories, whether they're in politics or sports or Howard Stern, it's because that individual host or the show was a compelling listen. It's not because with all due respect from Joe to Joe from Kensington, it's not because Joe from Kensington is calling up to ask about Jalen Hurts or, or to rant about Carson Wentz. It's because the hosts and the show themselves were interesting and informative and entertaining. And, you know, you need that. Would you like a Wednesday morning Woj bomb? Yeah, I've been reading this. I've been following this. Go ahead. Lay it on, everybody. All right. Uh, this is news this morning out of Boston. Danny Ainge has stepped down as president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics. Brad Stevens will not be the head coach of the Celtics, instead moving into the front office to basically become the head. He's going to lead the search for the new head coach, and it sounds like he's going to become general manager, de facto at least, in Boston, which is ironic because this ties into the Sixers because – for years, there was all this hammering of, oh, Danny Ainge did such a great job, and, you know, the, the Brian Colangelo thing, and he suckered Colangelo in the trade him for Fultz and all this. Well, he did. He did. <laughs> I mean, he did. He did. You know, like. But but in the end, in the end they're all the same spot. Danny Ainge is a GM. I right. mean, Danny Ainge brought the big three together right. um, in 08, or in 07 and 08, and they were great for five years. They, they could have won another championship, maybe two more. They took the Lakers to Game Seven in 2010. They were leading the LeBron in the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012. Um, you know, I mean, have they been as good lately as everybody thought they might be? No, probably not. But they were pretty freaking great. And they for did get to the East Finals. And they did get to the East Finals. I think what three of the last four years, something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's pretty good too. It is pretty you know, good. They, had, they they were up on LeBron and look. I know, I know, I get it. It's it's results based, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Danny Ainge is a heck of a general manager, and I think Brad um, Stevens is a heck of a coach. I just think maybe the time worn wore down for him up there. Yeah, it probably did. It probably did. And um, I just never pictured know, him as a GM type. You know, here's a guy who you know was a terrific college coach, transitioned seamlessly to the NBA, became mm-hmm. an excellent NBA coach. Um, there's no re- there's nothing in Brad Stevens career resume history to suggest he can't do this. Um, we'll see. It doesn't mean he's going to, but you know, I think he's pretty sharp. Yeah, he is.
All right, so let's get to uh, back to the Sixers. And I wanted to bring something up. I wanted to bring up the Doc Rivers stuff from the other night. Um, with, with him defending, with him defending uh, Ben Simmons, and there's obviously a, a, a couple bits of sound. And I'm hoping I have the right uh, cues. Here is a, here is one when asked about uh, Simmons the other night during the press conference. Listen, if you analytically, if you split all those free throws offensively, you'll take a point per possession, you know? So he did that. I had no issues with it. Obviously, we loved him. I made him both. Um, but I didn't think that changed the game at all for us. So uh, I was fine with it. You know, if he had to miss both and both and both, then that's something. But uh, overall, I was fine with it. Obviously, that's what they're going to do. That's what they should do. And we're fine with that. All right. So this is about, obviously, Hackabin and uh – you know, I don't mind a, a coach defending players. I really don't. But there is also a point of you can't sound totally ridiculous in, in the verbal gymnastics of it. And I think Doc, for the first time in Philadelphia, sounded really ridiculous with that. Yeah, look, um, that's that's exactly what he's doing here, right? They're going to kill Ben Simmons with kindness in the hopes that that creates an environment where he can thrive. That's clearly what the, the tack they're taking. Um, and that's fine as far as it goes. The issue I would have with with Doc in this situation is, I mean, he's just factually, I think he's just kind of wrong, right? It was um, Simmons missing those free throws. You, can, you can't look at it analytically because if he knocks down the first two, mm-hmm. that it changes stops. the dynamic. Yeah. Maybe the Wizards foul him again. Maybe they don't. But maybe him knocking down the first two you know, emboldens his teammates a little bit for the next defensive possession possession, because these are human beings, right? And the other four guys on the floor know what the Wizards are doing, and they're going to have a natural kind of reaction to Ben Simmons making only one of two and then making only one of two again. And never mind the fact that analytically speaking, one point per possession is not that good. No. It's not that no. good, you know, and we can get hung up on, you know, they should should have gotten a stop defensively, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, Doc didn't sound good there, but Doc was falling on a grenade for his second best player. Um, so you're going to sound ridiculous at times when you do that. And and so the question came up and this is Kevin Kincaid crossing broad and D line him later on in this clip. Uh, this is about a minute long, Mike. So I'll warn you, uh, about whether you keep Ben Simmons in games in a tight game. If you know the Wizards are going to foul him, Doc, is there anything that you can do coaching wise? Does the thought cross your head at all to take him out of the game there? No. Why not? You want me to take Ben Simmons off the floor? No, I mean I got to ask the question. I will pass on that one. He's pretty good, so I'll pass on that suggestion. Uh, obviously, not one person saves the day, but I think when Joel is in trouble and gone, and fans want Ben to save the day because they look at him as the other cornerstone and they feel like he gave delivers less than what they're expecting is that fair for them to see it that way no but but you guys keep this ben simmons narrative alive which to me is freaking insane how good this guy is and all the things he does ben is not a 40 point guy it's not what he does he does other things for your team and I just don't understand why that's not sinking in in our city. Um, you know, everybody on the team doesn't have to be a scorer to help the team. Ben scores, uh, but Ben creates scoring for us. That's what he does. 
So, um, you know, if I'm being at some point, I'd get tired of it. I just would uh, because he's just too good and he does so many good things for this basketball team. And we and I keep saying it. Celebrate him. Celebrate all the stuff he does well. We don't do that enough. You know, he's right. There are a lot of great things that Ben Simmons does. There are, I mean, you can't watch him play defense and not be in, incredibly impressed or, or see, the, see the floor and distribute it. But it's also fair to completely bring up this flaw and how this flaw in a playoff series against the Nets or the Bucks, or if you get to the West Final against the Jazz or the Suns could end up biting them. It, it, it's totally fair, don't you think? Of course it's fair. Um, and look, Doc is tapping into something that, again, you and I have discussed, and I know that you and Mike Kern have discussed on the show, and it gets discussed a lot um, when we're talking about sports franchises and coverage now. He's basically saying, he's making the argument that you shouldn't criticize a player. Basically, that's what this comes down to. is Like, in the main... Ben Simmons benefits the Sixers more than he hurts them. Therefore, celebrate him because in the main, he is helping us. Well, sorry, like, I don't sign up for that. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, my job, my job and a lot of other people's jobs in the media and a lot of fans are going to critique and comment on what is apparent and obvious to them. And yeah, is it, you know, is there something to be said for the argument that his flaw is just more apparent that if he were a better free throw and jump shooter, people would be happier. And yet they might ignore him, ignore the fact that if he were a worse defensive player in the net, he would give up more points than he gains. Right. Do you understand what I mean? Like, like if he stood around and with his arms at his sides playing defense and didn't run out to contest a three point shot and the guy made the three point shot, People might not pick up on that as easily as they pick up on him missing free throws and not taking jump shots. And so to a degree, it's easy to say, oh, Ben Simmons stinks because we all see him miss free throws and not take jump shots. I get that. But the fact is he doesn't take jump shots no. and he doesn't make foul shots. You know, Marcus Hayes, my colleague, pointed out he's shooting less than 50 percent from the foul line since April 1st. Everybody's using, oh, he shot 61 percent for the season. Yeah, but he's shooting less than 50 percent over the last two months. And that matters. It matters on how opponents play the Sixers on defense. It matters in a half-court offense in a close game. And it matters on a night when Tobias, when Joel Embiid gets hurt and Tobias Harris is having a lousy game Mm -hmm. and you need your other max player to be able to be competent in everything he's doing and Ben was not competent in everything he was doing. And too often he's incompetent in these things. And it's just a matter of you see what more he could be if he would just fix this flaw. And it's not getting fixed. And Doc, People get frustrated for it. And Doc, in fairness, also has to understand what the history is here. And the history is people remember what happened against the Celtics that first playoff year. And people remember what happened for large stretches of the Toronto series. That they probably beat the Raptors and who knows what happens after that? We always talk about that. They probably beat the Raptors if two, one of two things happens. Either Embiid doesn't get sick, which he can and can't help, okay? 
Or Simmons is more assertive and is able to fill, fill in the patches of his game that were there and that were and the holes in his game that were there. And the margin was razor thin. And so Doc has to, like, as much as I understand him protecting the player and saying how you have to celebrate, you know, he's right in a lot of respect, but it's also like, dude, you haven't been around here either. So you don't understand the full back history here. And I think that's where Doc, somebody in the Sixer PR department has to pull Doc aside and go, tone it down just a little, you know, defend the player, but tone down the, the, the little bit of right, you know, indignation, that you have in your voice when the question comes up over a fairly, I thought Kevin's question is fairly is a fairly posed question. Did you think about it because of the hack a hack a Ben situation? I think that's a fair question. It think- is. And, and the one thing that doc's got to understand, I think is, and, and I don't understand how teams don't get this yet. Teams in this city, which is to say that the one thing you have to do in Philadelphia if you're an athlete or a coach is that you have to be perceived as trying. If you try, they will love you forever here. Yep. Right. Chase Allen Iverson could, could not show up to practice and people were going to hate him for it. And he could rant about practice. But when the lights came on, Mm -hmm. he played every game. Like it was his last and people loved him for it. Okay. He tried. Right. And the perception, rightly or wrongly, for Ben Simmons is that this is an obvious flaw in his game, and he is not trying to fix it, or at least not trying hard enough. And it is not something that Ben has helped himself with, and the people around Ben have helped him with. Yeah. I, before game six of the Raptors series in 2019, I spent 10 minutes talking to his dad, Dave. And all Dave kept saying was, give him time. He's young. He'll figure this out. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. Well, it's two years on now, and it's no different. Right. He's still not shooting the ball well. He does, he's still not shooting the ball, period. He's not doing things outside of his comfort zone that we can see to try to improve as a player, and everybody can see it. And so the perception is he's not trying. Which leads to the ultimate hypothetical. I mean, we've talked about this. Kern and I have. If they go out early, let's say they lose to Atlanta. They're not going to lose to Washington, but if let's say they lose to Atlanta. Do you, I don't think they're losing to Atlanta. Okay. Assuming Embiid comes back, they're not losing to Atlanta. Okay. But if you go out anything short of a representative effort in the East Final, okay, do you consider Ben Simmons on the market? Or has Doc Rivers just kind of drawn a line in the sand and say, we would be nuts to get rid of this guy. They tried to trade him at the deadline. I know. Of course, Ben Simmons is on the market. They could win. They might win a championship and Ben Simmons might be on the market. Maybe depending on how things go. They tried to trade him. They wanted to get James Harden, you know, Daryl Morey's protestations to the contrary. They wanted Harden. And the Rockets wouldn't trade him to Philadelphia because of Morey is the, is the belief Whatever, whatever the reason was, they right. wanted James they Harden, and yeah. they tried to make it happen, and they didn't. So yeah, Ben Simmons is on the market. Yeah, absolutely for for the right kind of for the right package. I don't think you. I don't think they're going to trade Ben Simmons just to trade Ben Simmons, but they're going to try to get better. If they think they need to get better, they're going to try to get better. 
Daryl Morey's not somebody to sit on his hands. No. You know, you think you think the best thing he wanted to do in the offseason or during the season was George Hill? Nothing against George Hill, who is a solid, reliable, excellent player. Perfect, perfect bench guy for this team. You know, love George Hill. But they wanted to do more, and they tried to do more. Well, I guess the question is tonight, if if Embiid doesn't play tonight, do you put Simmons at the five? I'd think about it. It's, I would think it's about better it. Than Mike, it's better than Mike Scott or Dwight Howard at this point. Ugh. D- D- Dwight Howard, I don't know if he has thumbs. I mean, he just can't <laughs> hold the ball. <laughs> That's true. He's good for five fouls. That's about it, you know? Yeah. Um, Quick, we'll move quickly to the other. Uh, you got the big NHL draft lottery tonight, so I know you're 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 all set. I'm pumped, man. I'm pumped. You, nothing like ping pong balls and who? Um, <laughs> How about those Maple Leafs? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. They, are they the new Red Sox and Cubs at this point in America? They've sports? been the new Red Sox and Cubs. I mean, they haven't won a playoff series since 2004. Since Darcy Tucker laid out Sammy Kaplan, and that's what this is—the curse of Darcy Tucker. <laughs> Is it's true. That's that's since what's going the, the Ronickle. Um, Holy crap! They haven't won since Ronick eliminated in in yeah. Game Six. Yeah, they won the first round. They won in the first round that year, and then lost to the Flyers in six when Jeremy Ronick scored in overtime. They have not won a playoff series since. They are zero for eight, zero and eight in elimination in, games. In, in games. elimination in games where they could eliminate their opponents. Since then, that's crazy. That's crazy. And uh, to me, I view it very similarly to the Cubs. And, and a little bit more like the Red Sox in that they are so popular in Toronto. Yeah. Like, just like the Cubs were so popular in Chicago, that the impetus to really do what needs to be done to win a championship isn't quite there. Well, it's almost like, uh, it's also in the sense that they are a national franchise, uh, partially yeah. because Hockey Night in Canada, whether, yeah. you, whether you're a, a Leafs fan or not, you're going to get them Saturday at 7. I mean, right. you know, that, that's the yeah. way it's always but, been. But my point is, like, like here's what you need to know. In 1993, mm-hmm. when the Leafs lost in the uh, Western Conference Finals, whatever it was called. the um, It was the West, though. Or, not, was not, it, or was it the Campbell? Or it the might Campbell have been the Conference Campbell. Finals, whatever it was. The Gretzky? They lost to the L.A. Kings. Right. When Gretzky went to the Finals. Toronto held a parade for that Leafs team. Yeah. Okay? That's soft. That tells you what you need to know about Toronto. Now, maybe it's changed since then, but... That's a fan base that is willing to accept less than greatness. Well, they haven't won since. Say what you want about Philadelphia or New York or Boston to a degree. Those aren't fan bases like that. No. They haven't won since expansion. They haven't won a cup since. 67. Right. It's pretty hard. Yeah. In a sport where you only had 12 teams for a large portion of that. Amazing. um, Amazing. Let me. The Phillies, um, they were rained out in Cincinnati today. So uh, no Spencer Howard today. They get to that tomorrow off. They're back in uh, on Friday. They'll get the Nationals, who are behind them in the National League East at this point. Um, but it just feels like on these roads, they can't win on the road. Um, you know, last night, notwithstanding, as we talked about with Natalie, their offense is blah. And even when, you know, there's only two good days to watch. It's whenever Zach Wheeler pitches and maybe, maybe on days when Nola pitches because you could get your blood pressure up one way or another. Um, <laughs> you're, you're tough on Aaron Nola. I think he is just, I think he is portrayed 
we talk about this as a problem with all Philadelphia teams, but I think the Phillies may be the, the most. They build their own up to a point which is not reality. Aaron Nola's a nice pitcher. He's nice. He He's not a future Cy Young Award winner. I I kind of... I kind of question whether he's the type of guy that could be a, a, a one or a two on a real playoff team. That's me. And I could be completely wrong. I think, uh, look, is he Jacob DeGrom? No. But I think we, we do this in sports a lot nowadays. Is he Zach where, Wheeler? Is he Zach you know, Wheeler? Would you feel comfortable? Let's see, Zach. Look, Zach Wheeler's been great. Zach Wheeler has done this for a year and a half, Okay. Zach Wheeler was not some world beater with the Mets. Okay, but would he you was feel pretty com- good, Mike? Would he you was feel pretty good with the Mets? Right. Would you feel comfortable throwing Zach Wheeler out there for a game one of a playoff series? Not right now, yes. But but in uh, 1975, if I were covering the Boston Red Sox, I would have felt more comfortable sending Fred Lynn to the plate than I would have Carl Yastrzemski. And Carl Yastrzemski is a better was a better player yeah, throughout his fair. career that's than fair. Fred Lynn. You know, yeah. In the moment, I would rather have. I don't know. Um, it's not Aaron Nola hate. I should point that out. I, I, you know, the guy, the guy works hard. It's just I think the guy has been. They they drafted him in the first round, and he has been. He has justified that selection. Yes, since he's been here, he has justified that selection. But you can overstate in the Cy Young bo- voting. It is not his problem that they haven't had better pitchers around him and in the back of the rotation. Um, and, we, and we, you know, I, it seems to me you're the one who's setting the expectation of, well, the well he's supposed to be this and he's not. He, well, he is what but he is. No, but if you're he being, is really good. If you're telling me that, if you're telling me this is what he is, if you're telling me he's 30. Well, don't listen to what they're telling you. They're gonna, they told you Reese Hoskins was the second coming of Greg Lazinski. Yeah, that's fair, too. I, uh, yeah. I mean, now I sound like Kern. I know, but but like, seriously. I, just, I mean, come on. You know what? It's I gotta admit, it's the August and September's because that's when you find out about a pitcher. That's really when you find out about a pitcher, and he has been so disappointing over the last two years, basically with this. They've Actually, all been just, they, they, the entire, they've collapsed as a team. Each of the last three yeah, years. Yeah, but you need your number one guy to step up and and, and be the power. Yeah, you need a lot of guys to step up. You do. But he wasn't the only one, and, you know, I don't know. I just uh, – is, is he the best pitcher in baseball? No. Is he a really good pitcher? Yeah. Are they better for having him? Yeah. If uh, if they trade him, they uh, better make damn sure they get better for giving him up. They better see, make and damn I, sure. I've brought this up that I would consider shopping him only in the sense that his contract – his contract is appealing. It has a couple of years. It's not – outrageously expensive. Yeah, they need to, th- I would think about it, but you better, it's the Wayne Simmons situation. That you the better Flyers make sure, you better ago. make sure that you're getting the right guy. But yeah. you better make sure it, you are getting better for dealing him. And if it was Matt Clentak there, would I even think about suggesting this? No, but I do have a little faith that Dave Dombrowski could get that type of return hmm. or knows how to get that type of return. I could be completely wrong, but that's my own feeling. There are three guys that I think are appealing in that sense. Hoskins, although Hoskins is helping his value lately, mm-hmm. um, but they're going to have such a problem with Boehm that one of the two, I think, you're going to have to consider moving at some point. And can, can we can we give Alex Boehm a full season in the major leagues, please? 
He hit 340 in 60 games. But, but he's not. He's also not going to play. He's okay, also not going to so play third base. Maybe so, there's a way to figure out somewhere else to play him before we decide to trade him before well, he has no. finished his first full season in the big leagues. No, but again, I also point out that if you do put him on the market, you could get a pretty sizable return back. And that's where you have to f- have faith in your GM if you're going to do that. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying trade him. I'm saying would I listen? Yeah, I would. I uh, And some of the guys who would be out there, Harper, Real Mudo, all that, you're not going to get anything back because the contracts are just so prohibitive. They are so top-heavy with some of their contracts. Yeah, right they now. are. They are. Um, and so let's, you know, maybe the best course is to wait and see if Bohm snaps out of it. I don't know. I, all I know is. Matt, Gel- Matt Gelbar, buddy, put, yeah, it, he put su- the athletic he suggested demoting him. Yeah. He didn't suggest trading him. He said, suggested he's him, setting right. him down. And that's different from oh, sure. giving I, up I'm, on him. I understand. I, I, I'm not trading Alec Bohm at any cost. I'm, somebody wants to call, I listen. That's it. You know? All right. Okay. I'm, I'm not relaxed. I'm not ha- opening up like a No, I'm not relaxed. I've had four cups of coffee, Kevin. Well, that's your own problem. Um, will Zach Ertz be an eagle in two weeks? I don't think it matters one way or another. What, what, who cares about two weeks from now? All right. Well, will he be an eagle at training camp? No. No? No. Adam Schefter no. was on this morning with John Kincaid saying that they are not going to give him up for just anything. Yeah, because Adam Schefter has a pipeline to Howie Roseman. And Adam Schefter is going to tell you and what that, Howie Roseman that, is thinking. I was just going to say. Howie Roseman is thinking they're not, we're not going to give him up for, you know, for nothing. It, it, that pipeline is Howie Roseman. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, they're not going to give him up for anything, but what kind of a market? It, it seems like they've bungled this from the start. You know, There's nothing to bungle. Like, it's it's not about bungling. It's It's about this... Just because everybody could see the direction this was headed doesn't mean that we've reached the end of the road yet, okay? Mm-hmm. These things take time. And just because it hasn't happened, you know, by these certain benchmarks, oh, June 1st comes, that means the Eagles can move them if they want to, or it's easier for them to move them. That doesn't mean that the Eagles are waiting, you know, to send the email or to send a text message at, you know, 12.01 a.m. June 2nd to, to trade Zach Ertz. It just means that now they can. Yeah. So let's calm down. I, I look, you know, Zach knows the writing on the wall. Zach, Zach knows he's not coming back. Yeah. He knows it. Twelve oh one is when they send the Alshon stuff. I'm sure. <laughs> well, that's different. <laughs> yeah, that's different. That, that was like just go bye bye. See you. Um, all right, let me let me get you on the book here before we go. Um, you you have a publication date. I'm trying to remember. January 11th. January 11th. Um, We're going to talk about this with you beforehand, but now that it's done, I mean, you're, you're in the final phases and the book, you know, the, 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 you know, you have the cover art that's been posted on, on social media and all that. What's it like? I mean, are you nervous to see the reaction? Are you excited? Are you, uh, are you just tired? Because I know how much how many hours you ended up putting into it. I mean, um, I just want people to think it's good. I don't feel anything right now because the publication is basically six months away, and that's still the wheels of this process grind slowly. Um, I'm I'm gathering, you know, I'm still going through 
the editing process, so to speak. I just kicked back the manuscript after having taken like my second pass at it, meaning, you know, going through and making edits and tweaks and correcting typos and things like that. I'm going to get it back one more time. That was really my last chance to be able to make any substantive changes that I wanted to make. And I didn't make substantive changes. I made, I tightened sentences and added things here and there that I thought needed to be added or took things out that needed to be taken out. And, you know, notice that I repeated phrases, you know, throughout the book and, you know, or words and changed them up. Um, But the rest of it until the book comes out is gathering blurbs from people who, you know, so I'm sending the manuscript out to people, you know, to get endorsement blurbs, um, gathering photos for the insert. Um, When, when January 1st rolls around, I'll get nervous. Um, I know I will because I want people to think it's good. That's, that's more important to me than anything is that I want people to think it's well-written and that I got it right. Um, You know, I had access to material that nobody else has had access to before. I had tapes of Kobe's of interviews that Kobe did when he was 18, 19 years old. And I talked to people who no one's ever talked to before about Kobe. Um, And I I just, I want people to think it's a good book. And, uh, and yeah, I want it to do well, but I think, you know, if, if, if nobody buys it and every review of it or every person who reads it said, man, that was great. Cool by me. Um, If it's a New York times bestseller and the reviews all say, yeah, but he should have done this or that, or, and they point out things that are really shortcomings in the book. I would be more disappointed in that regard. There's a couple prong question on this. Um, one, you did not, you have a lot of stuff that's behind the scenes, but correct me if I'm wrong. There were no communications or there was no cooperation with the Bryant family. Correct. That's correct. I, I mailed Joe and Pam a letter and a packet of my columns asking them to help me. And I never heard back. Um, now I've been told by people that they know I'm doing the book. Um, but, and I would tell those people they can reach out to me at any time. Uh, they never did. Um, I also tried to get Vanessa, although in telling the story of Kroby's early life, Vanessa isn't really much of a factor. Um, she, you know, declined to speak to me as well, which didn't surprise me. Um, how difficult did that, especially with Joe and, and, and that side of the family, especially when you're talking about you know, a lot of his formative years were, were overseas. And, and maybe the access to the records are not what you would have if he literally was a Laura Marion kid from day one and, and was here the whole time. How much do you think that made it more difficult to do what you tried to do, which is paint the, paint the young Kobe picture? Well, I had some... In some ways, it was liberating because I didn't have to adhere to what Joe and Pam might have told me about Kobe back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was enough material out there that I could find um, that it made telling that story, you know, I was able to tell the story. Like, as one example, in 2015, uh, an Italian journalist published a book about Kobe, a very short book that, that dealt entirely with his life in Italy. So I have a family friend who speaks fluent Italian. So I bought the book on Amazon, gave it to the family friend. She translated it for me into English so that I could use it in my, in, for research in the chapter about Kobe in Italy. So right. there's going to be material that I got from that book that nobody in America has read right. and nobody in America has heard before, which is pretty cool, right? 
um, I was able to go to the Lower Marion Historical Society where they had back copies of the Marionite, the student newspaper at Lower Marion. Right. So I have anecdotes from that and, and was able to confirm facts that nobody else has had before or since. Um, so that those sorts of things helped in storytelling. And in some ways it liberated me to be able to tell the story in the way I wanted to tell it, um, to use Kobe's voice when I could, because I had his voice literally in a lot of ways. Um, but I didn't feel, um, I don't know if, what the right word is like t- tethered to Joe and Pam's version of events. Right. I could just kind of tell it from an intimate yet separate perspective. In, in that sense. I mean, it, it's almost like what Ian O'Connor has done in a couple of his books. Obviously mm-hmm. the, the Belichick book is the one that immediately speaks the mind in, in my mind of you're doing a biography on somebody who is either not going to cooperate or in Kobe's case, obviously is not around to cooperate. I mean, the challenges of doing that have to be enormous. I mean, just the idea that, and you're also dealing with a person everybody thinks they know, and you have to come at it from a completely different angle. If you just write a book about Kobe Bryant, it just ends up in a sea of bookshelves. You have to give it from a different angle to make people want to pick it up, correct? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that was part of the reason I wanted to approach the book in the way that I did. Um, you know, as I said to you before, that the elevator pitch line for the book is Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. I didn't want to do a full Kobe biography because I felt like his time at Lower Marion and before he joined the Lakers was kind of undertold in a way. It's a story that everybody in the Philadelphia area knows, but not everybody in the world at large knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really a dramatic story. Like Lower Marion's basketball program was pretty much nothing before yeah. Greg Downer got there as coach. And then it was, re- you know, and then Kobe got there. And then they go on and win a district and state championship. To your point about Ian, I've, t- I've talked with him a lot about throughout this process. He and I are friends. And you're right. He did the Belichick biography without ever talking to Belichick. And in fact, with having Belichick actively dissuade potential right. interview subjects from talking to Ian. Funny story, Ian's got a book coming out next year, not long after mine, and it's a biography of Mike Shashevsky. Right. And Shashevsky did not talk to him either. So um, I didn't even bother trying to get Shashevsky for the Kobe book. Now, I can tell you that I have Kobe talking about Shashevsky and his relationship with Shashevsky on some of these tapes and these transcripts that I got. And I tried to talk to Tommy Amaker, who was uh, Shashevsky's lead recruiter at the time that they went after Kobe. Right. But I did not bother trying to get Shashevsky because my, I thought if he ain't going to talk to Ian O'Connor for a biography about himself, you know, for a biography, himself. he ain't talking to me about Kobe Bryant. And there was enough material out there that I could call and pull and all of that. And, um, you know, I, I went to other sources for that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, it. It's a challenge in some ways, but in some ways it's very freeing. It is very like, okay, I'm not going to get this person. And so I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to go, I'm going to put that person at the center of a piece of paper and I'm going to draw concentric circles around him or her. And then I'm going to work those, those outside sources in those outer circles. And they'll have anecdotes that nobody else has, you know, the, the bench warmer on lower Marion's team or the equipment manager or the, um, female classmate who was friends with Kobe, uh, they all have stories about him too. And they're just as real. And they remember them better in some cases than Mike Krzyzewski would or Kobe himself might. Yeah. 
kind of a last question along this. I, I think everybody, you talk about the Philly aspect of it, and a lot of people know the story in the Philly aspect because we all lived it if you're of a certain age. I mean, we all lived what the summer of Kobe's announcement and him going to the prom with Brandy and all that, you know, that, you know, we, we you know, we just had Natalie on, you know, the Miss and Ellie magazine, the fan covered Kobe left and right. I mean, he was on the yeah. cover of it at one point. I went uh, back and dug up the cover story they did. Yeah. Um, but it's always been a belief and I, I don't want you to spill the state secrets here, but it always is a belief that from LaSalle fans that Kobe, they always felt Kobe was going there because Joe was there. How much do you delve into the LaSalle connection with Joe, with Speedy, I mean, it had a, it, it, it had a ramification going forward for the program, obviously. Um, how much did you get into that in the book? It's a significant part of the book um, because it was a, a significant part of Kobe's life at that time. Um, and I lived it from the outside as somebody who was a student and, right. uh, you know, w- working for the student newspaper at LaSalle at the time. Um, and I do break new information in that regard, which I'm not going to reveal now. Right. Um, but it was a big part of his life at that time, the, think, the thinking that he was going to go to LaSalle and the impact that LaSalle was having on his life and Joe's life at that time. Um, and, and there was a natural dramatic aspect to it because at the time, and I, I set this up, Speedy Morris is one of the major characters in the book because of the contrast between him and Kobe. Mm-hmm. The idea that Kobe was the shooting star who's going to go off and enter the NBA and speedy is this lifer coach, only division one coach who didn't have a, a, a college degree, you know, quintessential Philadelphian whose career is perceived to be in the hands of Kobe Bryant. If he doesn't get Kobe, he's, he might get fired, mm-hmm. probably going to get fired. Um, and so that story to me, there was a lot of dramatic push and pull there. Um, and so, yeah, to answer your question, it's, it's a significant part of the book. All right, so looking forward to The Rise, which comes out in January 11th. Uh, we'll have, obviously, have Mike back on before then. Um, so that does it. Uh, Mr. Kern is probably, well, he's probably still sleeping. because um, He's, on <laughs> he's probably drinking his way out of a margarita or a I, hurricane. I've never been there. Dived in, and he's got to drink his way out. I've never been to New Orleans. Honestly, it's one of those cities I don't have much of an, uh, a desire to go three to. Nights, three nights most, at most. I spent a Super Bowl week. There, I've been there four or five times, and I spent a Super Bowl week there once. And by the fourth or fifth day, I'm like, "Oh my god, you know, how do people live here? I, I don't get it. It's so hot. It's there's so much partying going on. It was uh, it was a challenge. Yeah, but I love it. I love the city. It's one. Of, it's one of those cities that's like, yeah, you know, I just, you know, I kind of view you're, my you're about a lot of things, Kev. I kind of view Miami in the same way. Eh. Fort Lauderdale is really nice. Lauderdale's nice. I'm not mad about Fort Lauderdale. No, no, Lauderdale's great. Um, Miami, not so much. No. So, uh, Mike, I appreciate you joining us uh, and and hopping in on the seat. Mr. Kern will be back next week. Then he goes on another vacation at some point here. So uh, uh, we will be continuing the process all through the summer. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for having me, Kev. I enjoyed it. No problem. Uh, Thanks to Mike for stepping in for Mr. Kern. Thanks to Natalie Eganoff. Uh, for joining us and our thanks to you for joining us there you go i can play the music uh we're back next wednesday maybe the sixers will be in round two at that point they better be 
This has been Mark on the Beat.